Amen. Growing up, I had a friend who I'm going to call Larry. Larry grew up right down the street from me, and we knew each other. We went to kindergarten together just all our whole lives, basically, since I can remember. And we, we went to the same elementary school, different middle schools, and then we went to high school together. And uh, one thing that we connected over just almost on a daily basis when the weather was right was basketball. And I would, I would take my dog, Perky, and we'd run down the street together, and Perky would play with Bo. <laughs> that Bo's a dog. And his, Luke, my friend Larry's dog. And Larry and I would just go at it on the basketball court. I mean, just day after day, you know, sometimes wet, freezing cold. Your hands are so numb, you can't even feel them. We just would play basketball. So he was a good friend of mine, just always a part of, of my life. We went to the same church all through all those years. And um, just a dear, a dear friend. Larry, though, uh, had a bit of a problem just that he encountered, and part of it was just uh, his family of origin, just issues in his life, but when we got to high school, he started to drink, and he, and he never stopped, actually. And so by the time we, we graduated and kind of went our separate ways, he went off to play Division II basketball, and I went up here to Gordon College uh, to ride the pine for one year of basketball. It's an awesome season. I had eight points on the season. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I'm on the record books. There you go. Um, he, just, he just could not get out of this, this addiction to alcohol. So a few years down the road, he ended up uh, getting a couple of DUIs and went to prison for a season. And then uh, <sighs> Shortly after he had gotten out of prison, he was, he was at a bar and was probably uh, just trash-talking some guys, got in a fight, and was hit in the head with a metal pipe. He actually went to the hospital, they stitched him up, and they sent him, I think he stayed in a hotel that night, but then ended up dying in his sleep at 25 years old. And that was really hard for me. One, because uh, Larry was just such a part of my life for so many years and just this, this tragic death, uh, it's just hard to know like what to do with it. But it was, it was secondarily hard because I, guys, I spent years of my life praying for him. Like, like I'm talking about back when I was in middle school and I first had my first Bible, you know, and I had this prayer list and I would, he was always at the top. I, I knew I could see what was going on in his life, even, you know, from a younger age. I knew there was, there was issues there. And I just, I prayed for him and prayed for him. I remember, you know, running into his, his mother at the funeral and just crying, you know, and, and her just saying, you know, Brian, I, I know you prayed for him. I know. I know all of the prayer that you, that you prayed for him. And so it just was hard, confusing, you know, just believing that God was going to get a hold of his life. And, and I have to say, you know, he was, he was an amazing evangelist. He had a relationship with Jesus. He would invite kids to youth group. I mean, he would tell people about the gospel. Uh, but he just couldn't get free from this addiction. So the question I want to, I want to talk about today is, hey, what, what do we do in life, and in, especially in relationship to God, when things are just really hard? Or when things don't work out the way that we had hoped. Or when 
or when there is tragedy in, in, our, in our lives, when there's, when there's real loss there. I mean, what do we do with that? So we're starting a new series today on the book of Lamentations. And our subtitle is How to Worship While You Weep. And I want to remind you, we're doing this because we're still on this track of the word of the Lord for our church for 2019, which is that we are to become a people who are rejoicing always. That is the, that is the, that is the, the goal that God has placed in front of us. If we're going to move forward as a people, we need to become a people that are just rooted and grounded in a, in a, in a spirit of rejoicing. That whatever life throws our way, we are able to rejoice. So we've been hitting a number of different things with this, but now we're trying to go to that kind of darker side of this, of this, of this issue. So hey, praise the Lord that we're starting this when it's bright outside. It's not winter, right? It's a little less depressing, okay? Beautiful day out there. You can walk out these doors and you can still you can just rejoice in the weather, okay? But all that to say, right, if, I, I've, my sense from the Lord has been if we can do this, if we can get this down in our hearts, just really ground ourselves in a spirit of rejoicing and learning how to do that, regardless of the seasons of our life, God is going to give us clear vision in 2020. It's the year of vision, right? 2020. Okay. So let me give you a little background to this book of Lamentations, okay? It's, it's an anonymous book. It does, there's no author identified in the text. Uh, before I started studying this, I always assumed it was Jeremiah. I think that's kind of what the popular idea is. But some of the scholarly stuff that I read, they think, you know, it's possible it could be Jeremiah, but most people, most of the scholars think it's actually a priest probably it, that's a contemporary of this guy named Jeremiah who was a prophet in the Old Testament. Now, what's happening in, in these guys' lifetime? is that we've got the nation of Israel, right? Moses leads the people up, you know, out of Egypt, and then Joshua leads them into the promised land, and then there's just hundreds of years of history that's in the Old Testament. So from Moses till the time period that we're talking about right now is almost about 1,000 years, maybe 900 years. And through that time, if you read through the whole Old Testament, things were not just roses. They were actually pretty terrible almost all of the time. Apart from a few kind of bright spots in the history of Israel, things were pretty bad. And the reason that they were bad is because Israel did not keep their covenant with God. They made an agreement with God. Moses, you know, Charlton Heston, you know, the, tab, you know, the, the tablets. Nobody's seen that movie. I haven't even seen that movie. It's still this iconic thing, right? Okay. You get the, you get the Ten Commandments. It makes this agreement, this pact, this, this thing the Bible calls a covenant with the people of God where it says, hey, you're going to do this and I'm going to do this. Okay. And the people over and over again just, have, just break the law. They go against God's will. So the period of Judges, right after Joshua, it just says every man for hundreds of years did what was right in his own eyes. And this, you just see this downward spiral of sin and how it affects the nation. Until, until the book ends with this horrible civil war. One whole tribe is almost completely wiped out. You move into the, the period of, of the God, you know, the people say, God, give us a king. So God gives, them Saul. God gives them Saul because they reject God as king. He was their king. That doesn't go so well. So then God picks David. And you get a little bit of a bright spot for David and Solomon. But then after that, you kind of still get this downward spiral again. And every once in a while, you get a king that does a little bit of good. But if you read through all those books, it's just like every king has got something wrong with them. Even if they're mostly good, there's, I don't know. Okay. You're getting the picture. It's, I'm just trying to tell you, okay, there's a, there's a long history here. Okay, that we're leading up to this point. So what happens is, 
God starts sending prophets. Okay, and that's where you get all these books in the Old Testament, these prophetic books. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Amos, Joel, you know, all those ones, okay? And then you get kind of, you get kind of, you know, it's hard to recite the rest of them, okay? And they're all coming to these two nations and end up splitting after Solomon's reign and just warning them and saying, hey, you guys need to turn away from your wicked ways. Stop oppressing the poor. Stop worshiping other gods. And yet the people just don't listen. So this is happening for like long periods of time. And so eventually, God sends Jeremiah and other prophets are prophesying the same thing and says, hey, God is going to now destroy the city. He's going he's to come in. You guys are going to get conquered by this foreign land. And that's exactly what happens. The nation of, so in terms of empires that are happening during that time, the Assyrian Empire rises to power. They come in and conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. Then they get beaten down by the Babylonians. You guys familiar with the Babylonian Empire? I mean, like, per, you know, okay. Keep going, Brian. Nebuchadnezzar, big name. They come in, and they're just, they're just wiping out city-states all over the place. And they come, to, they come to the southern kingdom now of Judah, and they, they conquer Jerusalem. And that happens in 586 B.C. The walls fall. They conquer the city. And it's, it's just a total just decimation. And so you have to understand, it's not just that, that they lost a war and all the carnage of war that is there. You know, rape, just lots of people killing, family structure totally disintegrating because people are getting killed. But it's also the total loss of a way of life. Because what happens is when they come into the city, they destroy the temple. You've got to understand what that meant for them. Because the whole journey out of Egypt was to establish this group of people as a, as a group of people that would, that would be a light to the rest of the nations because the presence of God would be with them. So God first says, build a tabernacle, build this tent, and I'm going to dwell in this tent. And then they finally get to the promised land. And then Solomon, you know, David says, I want to build a temple for you, a house for you, God. God says, no, but I'm going to have your son do it. And so Solomon builds this temple. And this is, this is the centerpiece of their world as a people group. It's the, it's the presence of God. When, when Solomon first dedicates the temple, it says that this cloud came down and filled the temple so, like, amazingly, this cloud of God's presence that no one could even be in there. And so they look to this temple to say, this is our connection with God, and now it is destroyed. So not only is there all of these horrible things happening because of war, but also they've essentially, in a way, lost their whole religion, their, their relationship with God, the thing that has connected them to God, the thing that has set them apart as a people. It's gone. It's gone. So we enter this book, and now if you have a Bible, I'd really encourage you to turn there, or if you just can pull it up on your phone, because I want to show you a couple things about this book. That's the backstory for what this, this book is, is, is talking about. So I won't go, I'm, thank you for being patient with me to go through a long back, back history there before we read the scripture. I just feel like it's important to know the, the depth of what's happening here. Now I want you to look through this book. It's only five chapters long, which is a pretty short book for the Old Testament, at least up to this point. A lot of them are really long. Um, so it's just five little chapters, and it's, and it's five poems that this author has written. 
Now, I want you to look through real quick, and you'll notice something about the verse numbers. Look at, the, look at how many verses there are in each of these chapters. Anybody seen it? There's 22 in all of them but the third. And the reason is because these are a, what's called an acrostic poem, which means they take the alphabet. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and so each, the start of each verse, they would start with, like, if it was English, A would be the first letter of the first word in the first verse. Are you following me? Then verse number two would start with B, and then verse number three would start with C. You guys tracking with me? So that happens throughout the book. There's, there's a couple exceptions, though, which are interesting. Chapter 3, there's 66 verses. That's 22 times 3. A little mental math there. Yeah. Okay. And so it has sets of three verses. So all, the first three verses would start A, 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 the first word. The next three verses would be B, 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 etc. But what's interesting to notice is that the fifth chapter, although it has 22 verses, does not follow that pattern. And so what commentators think about that last chapter is that the author is so, he's trying to bring order to the chaos that is around him. He's possibly lost people that he loves. The whole society has been, you know, just totally disrupted. People have been killed or sent into exile or kind of let the remnants left in the land just to kind of, you know, make sure that wild animals don't take, care, you know, take over or whatever. He's trying to bring order out of the chaos of this, losing the temple and being destroyed. Like, do we, are we even connected to God? Are we a people anymore? Is this whole story of Abraham's descendants, is it just over? Is that just the end of it? All those promises and starting even back in Genesis, is it just all gone? So he's trying to bring some order even in the structure of the poetry that he's using. But by chapter 5, he's just like, there's just no order. This is just chaos. I don't even know what to do. And that's the feeling you're going to get in this book is just this, this depth of grief and loss. And even in the structure, he's expressing the, the chaos that he cannot bring order to. And I think for, you know, for many of us, we can identify with that. When we are going through a loss or grief, it just, it just feels like, is there a God? Is there any order to this chaos? Is there anything meaningful? Will anything come out of this? Will I ever get out of this just spiral, just the, the, the madness even of trying to, trying to get a handle on all of this, this trauma and, and awfulness. So we're going to deal with just one chapter a week. We're going to start today with chapter one. So let's start there and we're going to read, we're just going to start with the first 11 verses, okay? So read this with me. The question we are asking today, sorry, very long introduction today just to get into this book, but what do we do when things are really hard? What do we do in the face of, of, of incredible loss? How do we cope and how do we move forward in a relationship with God in the face of, of horrible things? Here's what it says. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people, how like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn. 
for no one comes to her appointed festivals. All her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan. Her young women grieve, and she is in bitter anguish. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. All the splendor has departed from daughter Zion. Her princes are like deer that find no pasture. In weakness they have fled before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and wandering, Jerusalem remembers all the treasures that were, her, that were hers in days of old. When her people fell into enemy hands, there was no one to help her. Her enemies looked at her and laughed at her destruction. Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. All who honored her despise her, for they have all seen her naked. She herself groans and turns away. Her filthiness clung to her skirts. She did not consider her future. Her fall was astounding. There was none to comfort her. Look, Lord, on my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy laid hands on all her treasures. She saw pagan nations enter her sanctuary, those you had forbidden to enter your assembly. All her people groan as they search for bread. They barter their treasures for food to keep themselves alive. Look, Lord, and consider, for I am despised. So one note, and especially as we read the next section, is just that the author is making a metaphor between Jerusalem, the city, and a woman. So as you hear reference to kind of a woman, he's just saying Jerusalem is like this woman, and this is what's happened to her. And some of the references in here are, are about just kind of um, that her lovers have, have, have not come to comfort her, etc. It's just the, the idea that God speaks in the Old Testament about Israel you know, going after other gods, like in the sense of like a metaphor of a woman committing adultery with people. And so that's kind of some of the language that's here. Now, a couple of things we have to keep in mind here. Number one, this is a unique situation. What we've seen here is even in verse uh, number five, it says, the Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. This situation is unique. God made this covenant, this pact, with this specific family of people. And in this pact was this agreement that, hey, if you guys do what's good, you will be blessed. I will bless you. If you do what is wrong, then I will bring curses on you. And you have to understand that we do not live in that agreement anymore. So although this is part of the Bible and there's application we're going to draw out of us, you can't just take a one-to-one correspondence between this book and where we're at because we're not in a covenant of Moses. We're in a covenant with Jesus. Okay? So it's a different situation, although there's much we can learn from this book. And that is why you have to understand that the kingdom of God does not follow the rules of karma. It does not. God is always working for your good. And he is not the author of evil. So wherever we go with the things that happen in our lives, did God do this? Did he permit it? Is it the devil doing it? You know, we get pictures in the book of Job and other things. Wherever the mystery of that is, we know that God is not looking to curse us when we do something wrong. Yes, the Bible says God disciplines those he loves. But that is different than God meeting out punishment and wrath. 
Are you tracking with me? God is not in heaven watching you to see if you will mess up. Right? So you said a nasty thing to your coworker and then you stub your toe and you go, oh, that's just God getting me back, you know? It doesn't work that way. Now that sounds silly, but many of us are still in that way of thinking. We think that God is up there waiting for you to screw up and then he's going to send some bad stuff into your life to punish you for it. That way of relating to people ended when the Mosaic Covenant was done. And let me just tell you, in my opinion, that was never what God wanted to do anyways. That was their idea. God's idea was, you come to me and be a nation of priests. People that relate to me as Abraham did, and they rejected that. And God said, great, well, what do you want to do then? Well, Moses, you go up there and be our intermediary. There's someone between us and God. And give us a covenant almost like the nations have with their gods. Karma is not in the kingdom. The other thing that you have to understand is you, as you wrestle with even the, the, the idea of God executing judgment and wrath on the nation of Israel, he waited hundreds of years before he did this. Sent them warning after warning. But at some point, it hit a point where God said, I cannot allow this to go on. Maybe it was because they're just defaming his name among the nations instead of being a light, and it had to end. Maybe there's something that needed to happen in order so, so Jesus could come in the flesh, that it couldn't continue like this. Guys, the, the level of sin that we're talking about is like child sacrifice, rampant cult prostitution, oppression of the poor. I mean, just, just an awful society that has just, that just totally spiraled out of control. And one thing that, we're, that is interesting in this book is that the question that we're often wanting to ask God, the question why, this book never addresses. Part of that is because the answer is clear. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. But I think also because in some ways that's not what is going to get us through to the other side. Just like in the book of Job, Job never gets the why question answered. Knowing why this is happening is not going to bring us from this terrible place of agony and inner turmoil. It's not going to get us to the place of it being okay. Right? Because knowing why doesn't make it okay. It doesn't bring that person back that's dead. It doesn't resolve the issue that happened. The why question is not the helpful question. Now, the, one, the other piece that I think we can get from this first section is this. When we're in a place of grief or loss or some kind of extreme you know, trauma or whatever, we have to get real with the facts about that. Our society is not very good at grief. Right? You get the one-day funeral, maybe the wake the night before if you're Catholic, right? Okay? Protestants don't always do that. That's at least a step in the right direction, I think. But then that's kind of it. And people are hesitant to ask you about it after that moment. That's not helpful, really. Because what we're seeing in this book is we've got to express what is going on. And the first step in that is just saying, this happened to me. And this was hard. I can remember Jade and I meeting with with someone years ago, 
and them expressing something and kind of just brushing it aside, something that was a difficult experience for them. Now, I'll never forget Jay just saying, hey, that was a loss for you. That was a real loss. Let's just, you know, and now I'm extrapolating. She didn't say much more than that, but then we started to process that. But let's just get real here. There is loss in life that is real. That the Bible is telling us, if this book is in the canon, we need to be okay with dealing with and saying, yeah, let's get real with this. This was really hard. This was difficult. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. So now there's a little shift in the, in the passage where the, the, the writer is almost taking on the, the identification, the, the, the persona of woman Zion, Lady Zion, this woman that he's using a metaphor to represent the, the nation and the city of, of Jerusalem. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look around and see. Is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me, that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger? From on high he sent fire, sent it down into my bones. He spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He made me desolate, faint all the day long. My sins have been bound into a yoke. By his hands they were woven together. They have been hung on my neck, and the Lord has sapped my strength. He has given me into the hands of those I cannot withstand. The Lord has rejected all the warriors in my midst. He has summoned an army against me to crush my young men. In his winepress, the Lord has trampled virgin daughter Judah. This is why I weep, and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me, no one to restore my spirit. My children are destitute because the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is no one to comfort her. The Lord has decreed for Jacob that his neighbors become his foes. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. The Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled against his command. Listen, all you peoples, look on my suffering. My young men and young women have gone into exile. I called to my allies, but they betrayed me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they search for food to keep themselves alive. See, Lord, how distressed I am. I am in torment within, and in my heart I am disturbed, for I have been most rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves, and inside there is only death. People have heard my groaning, but there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my distress. They rejoice at what you have done. May you bring the day you have announced so that may you bring the day you have announced so they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you. Deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my sins. My groans are many and my heart is faint. Selah, right? What do you say after that? Right, what do you say? The thing that I sense that is a shift here is the, the author is, it's getting more personal. He's looked and said, okay, here's what's happened in those first 11 verses. And now he's saying, I am experiencing this in the sense of almost like I am the, the whole nation. It's getting emotional, right? I am at torment, he says, within. He's probably feeling this himself, even though he's representing kind of the whole nation. But this is an important lesson for us. We first need to recognize sometimes in our life, wow, that was bad. That was really hard or is really hard. And then 
this is what I experienced emotionally. This happened, and this is now what I am feeling. We have to be a people who are willing to go there with our emotions from what we experience, whether it's in a day-to-day level or, or when there is some major loss in our lives. What's amazing about this passage is that this person is addressing this to God, right? He's, he's writing to God. He's describing these things. The, the one who brought this calamity on them. And that is exactly the place that we need to go. Even when it maybe feels like this is God. God, why didn't you step in? Why didn't you prevent this from happening? Where are you? Now, there's a question mark for us. Obviously, God is in control, right? He's, he's in charge. So there's always this question of, was this the devil trying to do this? Was this, you know, God, God's obviously permitting everything and that whole mystery of our free will and our freedom on this earth. But here, it's clear. God brought this on them. And yet, the author is still saying, I am coming to God with this. It's amazing, but still expressing the total depth of that experience emotionally. Even to the point where, you know, they're asking vengeance on the enemies. We don't have time to deal with that idea today, okay? But we have to pour out the emotion that is inside of us. Okay, pardon this analogy, all right? It's the best I could do. I have three small children who take a bath once in a while. When small children are bathing, there's always a small risk of poo in the tub. Okay? <laughs> you see the poo, and the kids start screaming, ah, poo, you know? You pull them out. You try to get as much of it out as you can. You know, you drain the tub, and you clean it a little bit, stick them back in there. You have to drain the poo water before you can get the fresh water. If you just keep trying to put more fresh water it just turns into poo water. Are you following me? I was hoping this is bringing a little humor to a, 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 a you know, lower emotional subject here. Because we have to get that stuff out. If we stuff our emotions and our experience, if we brush off even just the details of the things that have happened, the reality of it, if we don't engage fully with the grief, we will never get to the place where, that, where, where we have that tank that's full of water that's pure again. Are you following me? A soul that's at rest. I'm not saying every problem is going to be fixed. I'm not saying that the grief will go away forever. But we can get to a place where we're okay. We have to get that stuff out. We're seeing this modeled for us in the book of Lamentations. So that's it. There's chapter 1. just ends with a a sputter. So let's just turn over to chapter 3. These verses that we read at the beginning of the service today. This is really the only bright spot in this book. So we're going to come to it every week because we're going to need it. Chapter 3, verse 22. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. In other words, he didn't wipe us off of the face of the earth. There's still some of us alive. And maybe that promise to Adam and Eve could still possibly come true. And through Abraham's line, it could still be that there would be one that would come to crush the head of the serpent and bring blessing to all nations. You've got to know that's what's in this, this, this guy's heart. 
The same applies to us today. Because of the great love, we are not consumed. Notice the word. Because of God's great love, the person sitting in the dust and the ashes, mourning the loss of their family, watching as sons and daughters, the best and the brightest, are sent off into exile to serve a new king. They're looking at the temple in ruins. And they're saying, because of God's great love, we are not consumed. Can you, can, you, can you see the depth of that? Sitting in the ashes. His compassions never fail. Great is your faithfulness, your loyalty, your steadfastness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. I will refuse to turn my back on him. I will refuse to go my own way. I will refuse to take vengeance into my own hands. I will wait for the redemption of God. Because you know what? God is my share. God himself is my inheritance. God is what I get. Suffering reveals who God is for you. I'm not a big fan of suffering. I don't ask for it. I'm not hoping for it. But I know that if and when, as Jesus says, it comes, it brings something good out of me if I respond in faith. It purifies my heart. It makes my eye one that I see who God really is for me. And that if I have God, I have enough. That's the challenge that suffering brings to our lives, is to, is to give us an undivided heart before God. And guys, we have to understand that God, as John Piper says, is the gospel. This is not a message where you get a ticket to go to heaven. This is a message where you get a relationship with God Almighty. Where you've moved from being an enemy to being a friend of God. That you know how a relationship with God. And if this author can say that, how much more can we say that who are filled with the Holy Spirit? Who can look back on what Jesus has done as victory on the cross and say, there's my man. He went before me. He provided forgiveness of all my sin. He's welcomed me into the family of God. The gospel is God. We get God. The earth now has a king, and his name is Jesus. Right? And his reign is everlasting. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Which means that one day, all of the suffering will stop. That every tear will be wiped from every eye. There will be no more sorrow and no more sickness. That is happening now. Jesus is bringing that now. He is the seed of heaven that was planted in a physical body in this earth. Heaven has been joined to creation. Are you, are you with me? Forever and always. Jesus has committed himself to this earth and he is bringing his kingdom here. 
God says, behold, I am making all things new. I am making them new now. He is bringing that because God hates suffering. Remember what Jesus said. Such a puzzling statement. In this world, you will have trouble. But, oh, friends, take heart. I have overcome the world. What does that mean? It means that he is king of this earth, and his kingdom is overcoming the kingdoms of this earth. The kingdom of heaven is invading and taking over the kingdoms of this earth to do away with all that is evil. And the ground, right, for God being our portion, even the midst when we don't see heaven invading, when we don't see that, we know that that promise is there. And we experience bits and pieces of that in our life. And more and more as the kingdom of God advances. But in the midst of this, guys, we have to know the character of God towards us. That is the ground for finding God as our portion. That the Lord's great love, I am not consumed. His compassions towards Brian never fail. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness to me. Great is his loyalty. It's resting in the character of God. That is how we worship while we weep. You may not be able to sing a happy song in the midst of your grief, but you can push into the character of God and knowing that despite the hardship of your life, that God is good and he has good intentions for you. And he is working all things for your good and he is doing everything that he can to bring his kingdom to this earth. To put an end to this stuff. Last picture I want you to experience today. Do you not know that as the Lord sent the Babylonians to Jerusalem that he wept? That every moment of your life that you suffered, that Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you, that he was crying with you. More than you, because he knew the depth even that you didn't even know of that experience that you had that was so difficult. As we saw with the Lazarus story, we serve a God who weeps with us. Even when he knows that resurrection is coming, he weeps because he is with us. He is Emmanuel. There is no God like him that will suffer with his people even if it is him that is allowing or bringing it. And oftentimes in my experience, as I've dealt with people who have gone through difficult things, that is the picture that they get from God. They see Jesus there. They don't get the why, but they see the suffering Christ who is with them in their pain. That's our God. And man, he is good. Let's have the band, the worship team, come up today. Come on. Just have a few ways for you to respond today. The first is, hey, maybe you just need to express something to someone. You need to get real with some facts and say, man, that actually was really hard. Or you need to say, and this is what it felt like. 
So the first thing that I would invite you to do is, hey, maybe if you're with someone that you know cares about you, you just need to turn to somebody and say, hey, this experience has come up as Brian's been talking, and this is what it was, and this is what it really felt. You just need to express some of that to somebody. The second thing, I'll ask the prayer teams, you can come up. I actually ask you to be on the sides, and maybe if there's some of you, you can be in the back as well and just have those tags on if you can so people will know who you are, and I'll be up at the front. So you can come to any of those locations. I would encourage you to come anywhere, but the front might be the easiest place, but if that's hard, you can go to the sides or the back. If you're in another place, you're really in a season of suffering right now, and you just need to know the character of God. It feels hard to grasp that right now. I just, I'm believing that I want to, we're going to pray for you this morning and something's going to shift. You're just going to experience the goodness of God. You're going to see Jesus suffering along with you. And thirdly, maybe you just need to, you need to process with the Lord alone. So then I welcome, I just welcome you to, you can sing, pull out a journal, look at the passage of scripture we just read, meditate on that. But please, in one of those three ways, I'm just really encouraged you to engage today. So let's stand. I'm going to pray. And then just ask you, hey, what is the Lord putting on your heart to do? Just go do it. The Lord is going to meet you today. Because he is faithful. Great is his faithfulness. Holy Spirit, I just ask you to come right now. Fill this room with the faithfulness, the compassions, the love of God that never fail. And I just ask you to meet with each one of us who all have our own struggles, our own pasts, our own pain, and come and meet us in that place. Right now, Holy Spirit, thank you that you're going to do that. Thank you. So come. Come.